0: I hope you were engaged and paying close attention as we sang this morning. I I do know I appreciate your good singing through our worship together and affirming God's truth together in the way that the choir ministered to us today. But just before the reading of the scripture, we sang, Thou alone shalt be my glory, nothing in this world I see. Kind of an idea of a singular focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the things in the world, he excels them all and is most important. You know, that's a difficult thing in any time. It's especially difficult, I think, in 21st century America. Because we live in a world of constant noise. You're constantly being bombarded with opinions Advertisements and worldviews. Uh, you, you carry them around in your pocket, and anytime you flick up to open your device, the noise comes at you. Corporations and local businesses advise you on the best use of your money, usually to buy their product and be happy. Artists promote their ideas and worldview through various media, music, artistry. Politicians tell us what's wrong with the world and how they're going to fix it, and they have the right answer, and that's opinion that comes your way regularly. Social media offers a plethora of advice on any number of things. And all of them claim to have authority. After all, they've found the real answer to some of life's greatest problems. News outlets make decisions about which news is most important for you to hear. And they package it neatly and tightly to present to you to see how you'll respond. And then they track you when you click through the article. Friends offer insights to further complicate the complexity of all the voices and all the noise in our life. Those voices oftentimes compete with each other and sometimes contradict each other. You hear one thing from this source, another thing from a different source, maybe a third thing from a third source. And you're constantly under this barrage of information that's screaming at you, listen to me. I'm important. This is what you really need. And with that kind of multitude of complexity of voices entering our minds, how do we determine which ones to believe? How do you determine which ones are good to listen to and which ones should be immediately shut down? How do you sift through all the noise? Which voices do you allow not just to enter your ears and your mind But which ones do you allow to influence your life? To actually shape your values, shape who you are? That's a decision of utmost importance. To whom will you listen? And that's exactly the command given in our passage today. Did you notice it? Look at the end of verse 35 in Luke chapter 9. After this amazing event on this mountaintop, this voice comes from the cloud. It is the voice of God himself. This is my son, my chosen one. Do what? Listen to him. And all the voices and all the opinion... God says, there's only one person really worth listening to. Listen to Him. And this amazing event that occurs on this high mountain somewhere in the Middle East that we refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration, where an amazing event of the glory of Christ breaks through for a few people to see, The whole point of that event is to demonstrate who you should listen to, who's worth your time, who's most important, singularly important. Well, how does the passage do this, and what in particular are we to listen to? This morning I do want to continue our series in the highlights of the life of Christ and refer to the transfiguration of Christ. This event is recorded for us in three Gospels, Matthew and Mark included as well. Luke has extended information that Matthew and Mark don't include and so we're looking at his account this morning. But I want us to note just a few things. My my goal this morning is this. We're just going to walk through this passage, note its context, so that we all understand exactly what it's saying. And at the end, I'd like to draw out just three things about the significance of this event and why and how we listen to Christ today. This is the transfiguration of Christ. I want us to know the biblical context of this event. To do that, I want to zoom out a little bit. We jump right into Luke's gospel and just start reading, but there's a whole biblical context. If you're familiar at all with your Bible, you'll know that Luke wrote most of the New Testament. He didn't write the most books, but by word count, he wrote more than any other. And Luke wrote two books, the gospel of Luke. And what was the other one? The Acts of the Apostles. And those were meant to be a two-volume set. And when you look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts opens up after the resurrection of Jesus. And the book of Acts is actually laid out geographically. Luke uh, fills in his information geographically. He begins by saying uh, the words of Jesus that those that saw Jesus' resurrection and the importance of that were to teach it in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So it's saying... Go, church, take this message around the world. Luke's gospel is geographically arranged as well. But Luke's gospel starts at the other end. It starts at the uttermost parts of the earth, as it were, in that day. Luke opens by writing to a figure named Theophilus, a Greek name, probably somewhere in Rome, And he starts by addressing this man and say, let me tell you what happened. And so after an introduction of Jesus through the birth narratives and listing some genealogy, Luke talks about Jesus' temptation in Luke chapter 4. We noted that last week. But I want you to look at Luke 4.14. In 4.13, the temptation in the wilderness is ended by Satan. And now verse 14, we're told, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about, went round about him throughout all the surrounding country. And Luke starts with the greater Galilean ministry of Jesus. That's up north by the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's the far reaches of Palestine. And Luke For the first several chapters in chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, he talks all about this Galilean ministry. But now if you'll go with me to Luke chapter 9, where our text is this morning, and just past our text, Luke does this beginning in chapter 9 in verse 51, he says, when the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go where? To Jerusalem, verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of who? The Samaritans. And so now Luke says, here's Jesus in the Galilean ministry. Now he's going to Samaria. He's going to try uh, to, to address a village there. But eventually he's going to Jerusalem. And so if you put the book of Luke and the book of Acts together, think of an hourglass. Luke starts at the top with Jesus' greater Galilean ministry, but all of that funnels to Jerusalem. And what will happen at Jerusalem? Jesus will be crucified. He will rise again. And then he picks up Acts and he says, and here's how that message went to the world. And so that is what Luke is doing and what he's teaching us in his gospel and in this book of Acts Well, when does this event, this transfiguration, take place in that scenario as Luke describes it? Let's notice the timing of this. It really occurred after about two years of Jesus' public ministry, two to two and a half years. And the transfiguration takes place at a time when Jesus' publicity is at its highest. He's fed the 5,000, he's healed the sick, he's cast out demons, he's calmed the storm, he's fed multitudes. And people are really catching on to Jesus and saying, he must be the one. There's something miraculous about this individual. At least he's a prophet from God. And his popularity is swelling. And now it's at the height of Jesus' public ministry that you have this private event with these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, that we refer to as the transfiguration. It's at this change of focus now where Jesus' popular ministry has reached its apex. And now he says, and now I'm going to Jerusalem. Now I'm headed for what God has called me to do. And it's at that turning point that we have this event and some other things that Jesus said. Here's the turning point to Jerusalem for the last time. Well, what does that look like, this journey? Here I have a map for you. You can see up there Jesus in Capernaum, the north of the Sea of Galilee where the orange line begins. And and Luke records this. It's the lengthiest portion in his gospel beginning in chapter 9. And this is the journey that Jesus will take for the last time to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. Well, what takes place at this turning point? there's some very significant things that are said in Luke's gospel. Look at verse 18 of Luke 9. Luke 9, 18 says, Now as it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. You have this great confession of Peter at this moment. Remember the popularity is growing and Jesus says, okay, who do people say that I am? And they come up with all these different conclusions. And Christ makes it personal. But you, you 12 that have been with me and seen me, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ Was that the right answer? Yes. That's the right answer. You're not just one of these prophets. You're something more. So at this turning point, you have Peter's confession of Christ's identity as the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Here's what else you have at this turning point. Look at verse 21, Luke 9. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Would that shock you? Peter's just made this great confession. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the conquering one that we've been looking for. Look at all these wonderful things you're doing. And immediately Jesus says, I'm actually going to Jerusalem to die. And I'm going to be raised. Jesus discloses his mission to these men. This happens at the turning point. There's Peter's confession. Jesus discloses to them his true mission. By the way, in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus makes this confession and he says, this is what's going to happen. Do you remember how Peter responded? Not so, Lord. You're not going to die. How could that be? I would never let that happen. And Jesus rebuked him and said, "You're, you're behaving like my adversary, Peter. Get behind me. Listen to me. Here's what else happens at this turning point. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus gives an explanation of what it means to be his disciple. At this turning point he says, here's what it looks like to be a follower of me. It's not all this pageantry and popularity of these crowds of miraculous things done. No, if you want to be my disciple, you need to walk in my steps, and that means you need to die to yourself. Are you willing to take up your cross and do that? That's what true discipleship looks like. Jesus issues an invitation to this crucified discipleship at this turning point. And then finally, notice verse 27. Jesus makes this prediction. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Notice this prediction is for some, not all, some standing here. It is before they die, not after they die, and that they will see the kingdom of God. They will see some Glorious manifestation of the rule of Messiah. So at this turning point, here's what Jesus does. He gives uh, Peter's confession. Peter makes this great confession. He also discloses his mission, I'm going to die. He explains true discipleship and he makes this prediction. Some of you will see the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 28. Now after about Eight days after these sayings. And you can see how Luke is making the connection. A week previous, Jesus had just given all these things. Now about eight days later, here's what happens. And what happens will confirm all those things that they should have listened to him. So now let's just look at the immediate setting of this event. It's about eight days after these sayings, and Jesus takes with him Peter, John, and James. Why those three guys? I don't know. They're often given privilege in the New Testament that others do not have. And all I can think of is Like in any gathering of God's people, there are some that seem more open and sensitive to truth than others. And perhaps would receive it. I don't know. But Jesus invests in these men. And he calls them aside, and he calls them apart. And what we know of these men is that James will be the first one to walk in this way of discipleship and give his life for Jesus. He's the first one to do so among the apostolic company. John will be the only one that doesn't experience that. He lives out his life on Patmos and apparently dies a natural death, but he lives the longest. And Peter is the one that's actually going to take the key and open the doors to the kingdom. He'll do that at Pentecost when he preaches about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes and people are gloriously saved. And so the Lord takes these three men, the end of verse 28, they go up upon a mountain to pray. Mountains are key in Christ's ministry. When you read through the Gospels, things happen a lot on mountaintops. This is no exception. In the land of Israel today, this is Mount Tabor. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where some believe that this event took place. There's, there's good scholarship that speaks against that. That there was kind of a fortress on this mountain in the time of Jesus. It wouldn't have been accessible. Some think it might be Mount Hermon further in the north. Nevertheless, this gives you an idea of the kind of landscape of the area. and Jesus goes up on this mountain with his disciples, Peter, James and John. And what's he doing there, according to verse 29? What's Jesus doing? He's praying. Here's the reason he went. He went to pray. And he wanted his disciples to pray with him. But what were they doing according to verse 32? They were sleeping. We're going to see that again in this gospel, right? Jesus goes to pray and and his heart is heavy and and he knows what's coming. The, The tide is turning. He's going to Jerusalem. He knows what that means. And he wants them to pray with him, but they don't get it. And they're sleeping. And so now, what happens? What is this transfiguration? Well, let's look at the event itself. I just want to look at it in two ways the sights, what was seen, and the voices, what was heard. Notice with me the sights, verse 29. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Here are the sites of the transfiguration. Luke doesn't use the term transfigured, but Matthew and Mark do. They say he was transfigured before him, and then they describe similar things of his face shining, his clothes becoming white. Mark says whiter than any fuller or launderer could whiten them. The term transfigured, you know the word, you've heard it in English. It's it's a Greek word, and it would be transliterated into English as metamorphosis. You ever heard of that word? Ever taken biology, you've heard of that word. A metamorphosis. It's a change. You've taken biology class, you've probably heard of it in terms of what takes place when a caterpillar, an ugly caterpillar, makes a chrysalis and goes into his Cocoon, as it were, and comes out what? A beautiful butterfly. I almost think of bug's life when I hate that, right? A beautiful butterfly. This, this is metamorphosis. It's change, but it's changed from the inside. Something happens that way. And this is what's described here. It's, this isn't that Jesus is on the mountain and there's a light shining from heaven like, like I have these lights on me now, these bright spotlights that are trying to illuminate what I'm doing so you can at least see my face. It's, it's a light that came from inside. And his face shines like the sun with brilliant intensity. And, and they describe his clothes as being dazzling white. And I don't think it's, it's, they can see the clothes per se. I think it's just whatever's inside of him is just coming right through all of that. And it's a transformation right before their eyes. In fact, 25 years later... When the Apostle Paul sees Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus to persecute followers of Jesus, and Jesus stops him in his tracks, what does Paul or Saul at that point see? A bright light. He says, there was this radiant light from heaven, and the voice said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think that's similar to what's taking place here, that these men get a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. The human flesh that he took on for us that veiled that glory at this moment, at the apex of the public ministry, the flesh fades into the background and the glory shines brilliantly. Here's what else happens. There are two other people that show up with Jesus. Verse 30, behold, two men were talking with him. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. Here's what's fascinating to me Moses and Elijah have been dead for thousands of years, yet they show up and they're recognizable. They're not entirely altered where they are not able to be identified. It's not like some bright light showed up and they started talking and we kind of figured out this was Moses and Elijah. They're there somehow and they figured it out that, yeah, this one's Moses, this one's Elijah, I can identify them. Well, why these two? Why Moses and why Elijah? Again, I can't be dogmatic about this. I think the best explanation is this. When you hear Moses, what do you think of? Do you think of the law, the law of Moses? Moses wrote the first five books of your Bible, that law given by God. But in that law were pictures, pictures. Take the lamb, sacrifice him, shed his blood, sprinkle it, put your hands on it, transfer it pictures time and time again and moses wrote here's what we're supposed to do the people of god do this repeatedly 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 this is the law of moses it's the law of god and then you have elijah and what do you think of when you think of elijah immediately in my mind comes the prophets of baal on mount carmel but elijah stands as a paragon of the prophets those prophets of old that God unable to see down the corridor of time and speak before its time of the glories of Christ. There's one coming. He will free us. He will deliver us. I think you have the law and the prophets and they're at this moment on the mountain in the promised land with the Messiah, seeing Him in His glory, and of all things, they're having a conversation. They're talking. Well, don't you want to know what they're talking about? I want to be privy to that. And the Holy Spirit has enabled us through the pen of Luke. Look what it says in verse 31. They appeared in glory and they spoke... Of his what departure now, if you have a, a modern version, I think the new American standard version says departure. I think the the um, net Bible, the Christian standard Bible these are excellent translations. I think the uh, King James version speaks of his death. well, well which is it what what departure is it talking about? well, literally. Let me give you the word, and I don't mean to be technical, I think this just helps sink it in your mind, okay? When I use Greek words, I'm not trying to say, oh, I know Greek, right? I really don't know it that well. But, but I'm just trying to help you to put your mind on something so you can latch on to it, okay? So let me just give you, here's the, here's the word in Greek, exodon. What does that sound like? Exodus. You have a whole book in your Bible that's named for that. And what does that book describe? It describes the children of Israel exiting Egypt. They were in slavery in Egypt. God sent a deliverer, Moses. Moses led them out of Egypt miraculously into the land of promise. This is the word. They're talking about Jesus' exodus. Now, isn't it great that Moses is there? Because he knows something about that. I think it's also great that Elijah is there because Elijah knows something about delivering God's people from idolatry when he faced them on Mount Carmel. And he, as it were, delivered them by demonstrating the power of God over them. And so you have this conversation. They're talking about his departure, his exodus which he was about to accomplish where? At Jerusalem. Okay, now you tell me, what exodus was Jesus going to make at Jerusalem? He was going to Jerusalem to deliver his people. How? He would die for them. To break the power of their sin and demonstrate it through his resurrection that he would lead people out of captivity to the evil one and into his abundant kingdom. That's the exodus they're talking about. And I can see Moses saying, you know what, Lord? I experienced that great exodus with your people through the waters, but it's nothing like what you're gonna do. It doesn't hold a candle to the exodus you're about to make. And they're focused on it. Well, what are our disciples doing? <clears throat> Look at verse 32. Now, Peter, those who were with him, James and John, were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. You know, they're, they're rubbing their eyes from sleep and they're kind of groggy and they're waking up and it's, it's glory. And there's Moses and Elijah and they're shocked. And we're told in verse 33 that as as the men were parting from him, as Elijah and Moses were fading into the background or maybe walking away, we don't know, but somehow it indicates that they were leaving, Peter has to say something. And isn't this typical of Peter? Here's another evidence of that, right? We can't just let this go. I got to say something about this. And he didn't really know what to say, so he just spoke up and he says, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, and the Bible says he didn't really know what he was saying. He was just like, I don't want this to end. Let's camp out here. This is great. Well, Peter did experience this great thing when he sees Jesus in his glory and the, the saints of old gathered to witness that. What will that be like? What will it be like to spend time with Jesus and seeing him in all of his glory? Did you know that Jesus wants that for us? He said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that's everyone that believes on Jesus, that they would be with me where I am to see my what? My glory like this. And it's the glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, I want all of my people to see my glory because there's something in that that changes us. And Peter sees that, and he's struck with it, and he says, I don't ever want to let this go. Sorry, I'm ahead of myself. I don't ever want to let that go. I want to be a part of this. And yet, Peter doesn't really think through all of what's going on. Because eight days earlier, what had Jesus said? You're right, Peter, I'm the Christ. But guess what, Peter, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And Peter, will you follow me and take up your cross in that way? And that's not on Peter's mind. It's like he's forgotten all of that and he says, I just want to bask in this glory. And wouldn't you? I don't fault Peter for that. But he hasn't really listened to Jesus. And so it sets the stage for this correction, verse 34. As Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. What is this cloud? Now, Moses and Elijah have left, and this cloud comes Clouds in the Bible are oftentimes a picture of God's presence. God oftentimes uses the semblance of a crowd indi- a cloud to indicate His presence among His people. Remember the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and in the temple. It was the sign that God's presence was among His people, in this cloud. And so the cloud comes, overshadowed them verse 34, and they were afraid. They were afraid because they knew this wasn't just rain coming. There was a presence here. It was the presence of God. Verse 35, and a voice comes out of that cloud. And what does the voice do? It does two things. One, it affirms Jesus' identity. This is my son, my chosen one. In essence, what the father is saying is, Peter, what you did say eight, about eight days ago, you're exactly right. This is the Christ. He is the one. Because that's true, close your mouth and listen to what he said. Don't stand in the way. Bow to his word. Listen. Listen. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was there alone. Demonstrating, this is the only one you need to listen to. Now let me wrap this up quickly this way. What's the significance of this event? Three things for you. Number one, it affirms the identity of Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one of God. This is confirmation of the confession that Peter had made about eight days earlier. He is the Christ. There is no doubt. They saw his glory. In John 1 and verse 14, 50 years later, one of the men on this mountain, John the apostle, will open his gospel and he'll say in John 1, 14, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, I was there. We've seen his glory. Peter, 35 years later, in 2 Peter 1, a passage we'll look at a little bit later, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I saw it with my own eyes. I confirm to you, this is the Christ. Secondly, this event confirms the redemptive mission of jesus remember what jesus says back in verse 21 of chapter 9 verse 22 I'm, I'm going to jerusalem i'm going to suffer i'm going to be rejected i'm going to die but i'll be raised remember in matthew peter stood in the way of that he said that can't be and this event confirms that this was always god's plan It was the reason he came. It wasn't just to excite people and gather a following and storm the citadel and overthrow the Romans. It was to do something greater, to overthrow sin so you and I could be free. They speak of his exodus, his death, his resurrection, its confirmation about that work. This is the most important work. Finally, the significance assures followers of Jesus. What do you mean it assures followers of Jesus? What this event does is it gives justification for maintaining the fact that Jesus is unique among any religious figure. If I mentioned to you the names of religions, names would come to your mind, names of people who are important in those religious circles, names of people that have done things and proclaimed things in those religious circles. And what this event does, it says, Jesus alone is the way to God. He's unique. You must listen to him. This is the only way that I have prescribed for man to be reconciled to God. And therefore, as his follower, when you listen to him, it is worth laying down your life for him. It is worth what he says back in 23 to 26, take up your cross, follow me. It's not always easy, but it's worth it, right? Because there's no other way to God, and there's no other one you should listen to. He is unique among all others. Follow him, listen to him, lay down your life for him. When you do, you'll find what life is all about. In our 21st century context, with all the noise and everything that bombards us to gather your attention, who are you listening to? You say, well, how do I listen to Jesus? I'm not on that mountain. I don't get that experience. Well, look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us how? By his son. The writer of Hebrews writes this after Jesus' ascension. He already went back to heaven, and yet the writer of Hebrews is saying this. Jesus is speaking. Listen to him. And he's not saying you're going to hear a voice. He's not going to call you on your cell phone. Where do we hear Jesus? Now, I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's look at this passage together because Peter comments on this explicitly. 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 16. Peter, writing to the church, says this. For we, and Peter's talking about himself and the apostolic company, particularly he and James and John, he says, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths In other words, when we're preaching and teaching to you, it's not something that we came up with. It's not a bunch of people getting getting together and being clever and speaking half-truths to try to influence you. He says, that's not us. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So what's he referring to? What event is Peter referring to? Well, look at verse 17. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him where? Okay, what's Peter talking about? Well, we just read in Luke 9, right? And he says, When we came and we preached Christ to you, we didn't make all this stuff up. I saw this happen with my own eyes. And maybe these people like you are sitting there and saying, well, yeah, I wish I had that too. How come Jesus doesn't show that to me and put me on that holy mount? I would listen to him if I saw that. Well, look what he says in verse 19. And we, now he's saying, we all church, now that Jesus is back in heaven, we have something More sure. Whoa, wait a minute. I want to be that eyewitness and see what happened on that mountain. And Peter says, we have something better. More concrete. What is it? It's the prophetic word, verse 19, to which you will do well to listen, pay attention As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. They didn't make this up. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying this. Jesus is still talking. You need to listen to Him, and you will hear Him in the Word of God. You hear him in God's word, the Bible. So listen to him. Well, when you do that, what happens? When you and I, like this, we open God's word and we go through and we explain it and we understand it. When, when you read God's word alone and you're with the Lord and you're, you're looking for Jesus and, and you're wanting to listen to him through his word, what happens 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, we all believers with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ, we are metamorphosized, transformed, same word, Matthew and Mark use, into the same Image, what image? The image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And what Paul is saying in this passage is this when you hear Jesus, you open the Word of God, you see Christ in the Word, it affects you, it changes you. Not all at once, it's from one degree of glory in Christ's likeness to the next, but it's inevitable. We're transformed when we listen to him and we follow him in his word and when God opens your eyes to understand all the facets of Christ's work and his grace to you the result is that it changes you now honestly beloved can you not say in your heart that there are times when we meet together as God's people and the word of God is open and made plain and you say I know that's Pastor Fagan talking, but there is somebody speaking to me. Christ is in that. He is ministering and speaking to me. Is that foreign to you? It shouldn't be because this is what God says happens when we listen to Christ in his word. And what else happens? God wants us to to experience this because Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the mold of this world in which we're living. Don't let this world shape your affections and ideals. Rather, you be transformed, again, the word metamorphosis, by what? The renewing of your mind by seeing Christ in His Word, by understanding who He is and what He has done and what He calls you to do, you be changed and transformed that you would be able to discern what God wants you to do and what is pleasing to Him. So the exhortation of Luke 9 is for us today. Listen to Jesus Listen to Christ. Go to His Word. Beloved, if I asked you this morning, how much time this week have you spent listening to Jesus as opposed to listening to everything else, would you be ashamed? And I don't mean to shame you, but I mean to bring this up. When you come and you say, but my life is falling apart and it's in shambles and I don't know what to do. I've tried everything. My counsel to you is this. Listen to Jesus, you've been listening to the wrong people. Crack your Bible and listen to the Lord and let Him minister to you and shape your affections. that you would be changed, transformed. Is Christ unique to you? Do you have any other voices you listen to? Or do you realize that He is your only hope? He is your only hope for forgiveness of your sin and to be reconciled with God, your Creator. There is no other way to God, He alone. Therefore, He is your only hope of living a God pleasing life in this world. And your vital everyday fellowship with Him is paramount. Listen to Him block out the noise, follow the Lord. He calls us to himself. He calls us to repent of all our effort and to trust anything else but to trust in him, the only son of God. He is unique. He's your only hope. And if he's your only hope, then the hope of glory is yours. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us, all of us, to be better listeners?